Thank you to Beth and the Flute Choir. Thank you for your ministry to us this evening. I invite you to turn in a Bible to Job chapter 2. We continue with part 3 of a series in this remarkable ancient book wrestling with great questions about suffering, about the problem of evil, the problem of evils in life. And uh, it's my privilege to pick it back up tonight as we continue on with chapter 2. I imagine many of us are familiar with the popular adage, going from bad to worse, or when it rains, it pours. There's no greater archetype of that idea than Job. He is the example par excellence of suffering and hardship. As you we considered in the previous two messages, we saw Job prevail in what we might call round one of his sufferings. And we come tonight to round two, in which he will continue to suffer now with a type of body affliction and even a suffering of temptation coming from his own wife. Satan, in his determined contest with God, is... is ramping up his efforts to bring God's man down. And yet, remarkably, we see Job persevering in this test. Our text tonight, I believe, is a challenging one. It confronts us with some probing questions. How do you and I respond to great suffering in our lives? And there's a question here about how are we to take this example of Job? and apply it to ourselves as believers in Christ. Please follow then as I read Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth. And going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, 
we are struck with this remarkable passage that gives us a window into cosmic battles, things beyond our visible eyes. As we seek to understand, as your word is revealed, answers and understanding to the great problems of life, we do indeed live in a fallen world. And we thank you that you are the God who rules sovereignly and graciously in it. And we thank you that we can derive comfort from your word as we face significant adversities. Give us our heart of wisdom as we look into these words this evening. We do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever felt beaten in life, especially when you were already down? A few years ago, a friend of mine suffered an intense series of painful difficulties. This friend of mine and his wife and children had returned early from a two-year stint of mission service in Bulgaria so that his wife could give birth to their third child here in the States. And having lacked the adequate medical technologies overseas, they were devastated to learn just a month before the baby's birth that the child would be born without a skull and would likely die within an hour of delivery. Well, as my friend and his family mourned through that trial, he went on to suffer many, many months of unemployment before the Lord finally provided uh, gainful employment to provide for his family. Why do we suffer so? Especially good people who serve sacrificially in the Lord's mission field. Well, hopefully most of us have learned that suffering in life is not necessarily a punishment for wrongdoing, nor necessarily the consequences of poor decisions, but can be the very testing of God according to his mysterious will, perhaps to prove our faith or for some other unknown reason. Perhaps in response to my friend's difficulties or perhaps other things altogether, my wife and I went through a a phase a few years ago of just fearing the what-ifs. What if we were to lose a child? What if one of us were to suffer a great physical setback, a disablement over many years? What if we lost our employment and means to provide for our family? I believe all of us fall prey to such nagging fears as we are weak and vulnerable in a fallen world. I think what strikes us about Job's suffering is the appalling nature of his trials. The wave upon wave, like a man stuck out in the undertow of the shore. Stricken and helpless, beaten down by crashing breakers. Job loses security. Then he loses his children. Then he has the loss of all bodily comfort. And lastly, he loses companionship altogether, as his wife seems left merely to torment him further. 
Satan may throw any number of temptations in an attempt to turn us away from God. But such temptations are a signal to us of our great need to turn our attention to Jesus Christ. I'd like us to consider our text tonight focusing on three temptations. The first one being the temptation to self-protection. As our text opens, we have a recapitulation, a return to the previous scene in chapter 1, in which we're privileged to this amazing view of God reviewing his angels. The angelic host come to present themselves before the Lord, and with them comes Satan himself. And once again, we are reminded here that Satan is clearly inferior to God. It is God who questions the adversary, making him subordinate to the Lord. But I also want to point out the identical response of Satan from chapter 1, in response to God's question, in which Satan, it would seem, is repeating his punishment. That his sentence that God gave him long ago in the garden of confinement upon the earth is echoed once more. It makes me think of the schoolboy who was punished by writing his misdeed on the chalkboard over and over and over again as part of his punishment before his judge. Well, once again in our text, we see that Job's plight has the initiative with God. It is God who challenges Satan to consider Job. There was none like him. God's man had prevailed through round one, and he was ready for another. Lucky Job. God seems pleased with this man who has held fast his integrity. In response to the first run of trials, Job worshipped God and did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And so in response, the Lord turns to Satan and rebukes him for tempting Job against him and actually uses a play on words, referencing back to chapter 1, where Satan scoffs cynically, asking the Lord, well, does Job... Fear God for nothing? Rationalizing Job's goodness on the basis of God's protection and provision for him. Now it is God who charges Satan for afflicting Job for nothing, for no reason whatsoever. And so up front we have an answer to the great mystery that shrouds the entire epic drama to which Job and his friends remain ignorant of throughout the story. His afflictions are not punishment for anything he has done, but they are a testing of God and temptation from Satan. Well, Satan is not convinced by the Lord's rebuke. He goes on to rationalize that Job's resilience... Is because God had bound and limited Satan from doing his full work. Satan again is cynical, hollering out, skin for skin, insisting that the man will cave into despair and curse God for the sake of his own life. So the Lord 
gives him more leash. But notice once again that Satan, again, is limited by God. He is forbidden to end Job's life. Now, from our human vantage point, that seems to lack mercy. But it's a reminder to us that the evil one can only go as far as the Lord permits. Satan is on a leash. He is God's devil. And he cannot touch us beyond the sovereign and redemptive will of the Lord. Well, with a quick in his step, Satan departs to do his dirty work to bring down Job and prove that nobody really loves God, that every man has his breaking points and will eventually abandon their maker and join Satan in his rebellious defiance. And so he strikes Job. He is afflicted with painful sores from the the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And we can only speculate as to what that disease was. Perhaps it's better to hear Job's words himself. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. He goes on to lament in chapter 30, verse 17 and 30. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. Here in dramatic, poetic form, we find expression for the great misery this man of God is suffering. The terrible itch. The growing inflammation of the skin. The risk of infection with the incessant itching and scratching. Exposing his raw flesh to bacteria. We can only imagine what an awful sight and rank stench Job's wife and friends were encountered. But underneath the physical pain and sorrow... And the ongoing emotional distress was a public humiliation, especially in a society that equated physical suffering with great personal sin, a stand which Job's friends will not drop their charges against him. Job is now officially an outcast, he is an untouchable. In a remarkable fashion, we see Job's response. He merely takes a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself with, the only means of comfort he has. We find no evidence of grumbling, cursing, no shaking his fist against God. Job's life is in shambles, and he goes to the ash heap to mourn. We need to keep this setting in mind in future weeks and not imagine Job and his comforters sitting around a campfire or sitting around a comfortable living room, but rather in the midst of a reeking dump. This is the riches to rags story to the extreme. Now, it seems to me the design of the devil's temptation is to move towards self-preservation, Job had already prevailed against the loss of his goods, the loss of his own flesh and blood. 
Now he must contend against the loss of all bodily security, the freedom of movement, of any comfort and self-respect. In our own day, with seemingly miraculous medical technologies, I believe that many of us fall prey to the temptation to turn our hearts subtly away from God to worship idols, the idol of good health. How many of our Thanksgiving Day expressions of gratitude are centered on thankfulness for our health? How many of our prayer requests are are centered around a successful surgery or recovery? How much money does our society spend on top-notch medical research, on health insurance premiums, prescription medications? It's no doubt a hot campaign issue during an election year. Now, gratitude and prayers and medical procedures and prescription drugs, these are all good things. And we are thankful. That God in his grace and his common grace has blessed us with means to help curb the effects of the fall. Yet we must be careful that such things must not become little vanities that compete for our heart's affections. I challenge you and myself to catch ourselves. The next time you say, it's amazing what they can do these days. Upon hearing the latest and the greatest of medical breakthroughs. Are you more amazed by modern science and medicine than with the wonders of God's grace? Well, at this point, it seems that Job had lost almost everything. Yet he still had his wife, the companion of his youth, the delight of his eyes. Certainly, she could provide comfort in the midst of this trial. And yet, she too proves to be an adversary. It seems that Satan spared her not as a mercy, but to be a stumbling block to him. Rather than encourage him to trust in the Lord, she tempts him to curse God and die. Job is weak, he is vulnerable. And Satan is shrewd is to shrewd to use a loved one to perhaps tempt him. Such was the case with Jesus, whose own disciple Peter tried to deter him from the way of the cross. Jesus rebuked him, calling him Satan. We don't know the motive of Job's wife. Perhaps she resented his integrity as she pined away in her own bitterness. A more flattering interpretation might suggest that she was sympathizing with his sufferings and pragmatically moved him to just end it, to give in to his despair and commit suicide. She'd had enough and wanted to give up. Either way, she does reject the faithful response of commending trust in God, despite overwhelming losses and confusion. 
Now, older commentators are sometimes harsh with Job's wife. She is a tool of Satan, a temptress, an antagonist. Job does rebuke her in verse 10, comparing her with foolish women. But I would challenge us as fellow sinners, especially on the day that we celebrate Mother's Day, that we can identify with Job's wife, even if we can't excuse her sin. Here is a mother who has just lost all ten of her children. Any mother would no doubt prefer death for herself. Here is a woman who has lost all of her financial security. Here she is watching her husband, who is a good man, pine away in rotting flesh and indignity. And though she has no right to her bitterness, we can sympathize with her painful turmoil. Notice that God never rebukes her. But neither do we ever hear from her again. In my opinion, it's unlikely that she is the mother of Job's later children who are restored to him, lest the Lord was gracious to restore her youth in the likeness of our matriarch, Sarah. But ultimately, we don't know what happens to Job's wife. But we can find other women like her in Scripture. Think of Naomi in the story of Ruth. If anyone could fit this role, I would consider Naomi as the female Job of the Bible. You remember the story. When famine struck Israel, Naomi and her husband and two sons migrated to Moab. And there her two sons married heathen Moabite women. In the course of time, tragedy struck. She lost her husband and both sons, leaving her destitute as a widow. Naomi returns home to Israel, changing her name, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. And yet the Lord is faithful. Through Ruth, her loyal daughter-in-law, the Lord provides a kinsman redeemer in her husband Boaz. And through them comes the birth of a son who is laid upon the laps of Naomi, who can smile again as the women of the town call her blessed. Our God is the God who made barren Sarah laugh again. Our God heard Hagar in her distress. He answered Hannah and Rebekah and Rachel. It was Jesus who restored the widow of Nain and comforted two mourning sisters at the death of their brother and brought him back to life. You and I may suffer great loss, and yet we need not despair. We may be tempted to curse like Job's wife, We may be betrayed, suffer unimaginable horrors. We may be tempted to abandon God when we feel like he has abandoned us. 
And yet we must cling to the testimony of Scripture and to the saints of all history that God never abandons his children. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And that God is near to the sorrowful and to those who mourn. But let us return to the response of Job. It would seem that Job sees right through the design of his wife's words. He does not fall into the trap. Notice he also does not resent his wife who is turning her back on God. He does not follow her the way Adam followed Eve. Job's response is even gracious. Though he rebukes her, he is not harsh. Rather, he asks her a question, echoing the point he makes in chapter 1, where he declares that it's God has the right to give and to take. Shall we then not submit to God's judgment, whether we face a smiling or a frowning providence? His question engages his embittered wife, drawing her back and challenging her to reconsider the attitude of her own heart. Job reminds us of Jesus, the master of redemptive questioning to lead sinners back to repentance. And it's at this point that I want us to deal with a third temptation from this text. I think that it's tempting to read this story to draw a moral conclusion that can be summarized with this statement. Be like Job. You're facing suffering. You're struggling with adversity. Just be like Job. Just trust God when times are tough. Do not yield to your sin and bitterness of anger. Control your tongue. You cannot expect only good from God. You need to honor him with your integrity. Just be like Job. Job is no doubt a commendable example. A man who suffers every calamity imaginable. And responds with unhesitating worship of God. Even offering up a theodicy. Defending God against charges of evil. In the closing commentary of our text it reveals that Job did not sin with his lips. James chapter 3 verse 2 says that if any man can control his tongue he is a perfect man. Is Job the perfect man? He certainly responds admirably. And yet he is not without fault. God does rebuke him later in the story for his questioning of God's justice and goodness. Job is one of those rare, morally exemplary characters we find in the Bible, like Joseph, Daniel, perhaps Nehemiah, who stand out above the rest. And yet you have to take these characters in context of the overwhelming testimony of Old Testament individuals who are deeply flawed human beings. 
men and women who struggle desperately with sin. Though the Bible does not shine the spotlight on the weaknesses of these few men, it must not lead us to the false conclusion that they were sinless. Or to the delusion that we can attain some kind of Christian perfectionism, a stoicism. These men ultimately must point us to Christ, the only perfect man. Just as the Old Testament sinners reveal to us the depths of our own depravity, so these apparently righteous men direct us to the truly righteous one. Jesus is our supreme example of one who hits rock bottom. He lost everything. His freedom, justice, respect, his own companions abandoning him, forsaken by his Father. Christ is the only perfect man to persevere through adversity, blamelessly. Jesus overcame the devil's temptations to turn away from his Father, to abandon his mission of redemption, Jesus, like Job, was caught in this cosmic battle between God and Satan, tempted by his own family, his own loved ones, to seek his own good apart from the Father's will. And Jesus triumphed so that you and I don't have to. The good news of the gospel is that we don't have to be like Job. Is not up to us. We don't have to win the cosmic battle for God's honor. Jesus accomplished it for us. Put up to such pressure and temptation, you and I would fail. Unable to measure up to Job's righteousness, much less to the very righteousness of Christ. Unfortunately, some Christians try to put up a stoic front, a pretense of piety during great trials and sufferings, pretending everything is okay. A facade of, I'm okay, and I've got it all together. Friends, that is not Christianity. The gospel gives us freedom to be broken, to be human, to be people who struggle and wrestle with their doubts, with their pain, and even taking our anger to God. And the Christian community is one that should provide support for such individuals, to provide a listening ear and offer healing, not cliches. To direct one another to Christ, who alone gives us the freedom to rest in his righteousness, not in our own efforts. And yes, we must embrace one another, console one another, come alongside one another, offering people a much better word than the comforters that Job experiences later in this story. But ultimately, it's Jesus It's Jesus who alone restores our joy 
A joy that far surpasses the restoration of the things of this world. Because he can give us something that lasts forever. Himself. As we seek after his own glory. So shall we receive only good from God? Yes, we shall receive only good from God. Those of us who are in Christ. Even the evils we experience in this life are for our good. Even if we don't know their purpose. God never answers Job's questions. He gives him something better than explanations. He gives Job a vision of his glory. The comfort and consolation of a sovereign, almighty, powerful, all-wise, gracious, and compassionate God who is with him, who knows him, and will sustain him. Friends, our place of refuge in great adversity is not in pools of self-pity and not even in the sympathies of others, as helpful as those can be, but ultimately our refuge is at the foot of the cross. It's with Jesus, the one who gives us a consolation, the one who suffered on our behalf to bring reconciliation between God and man. As Paul, in his familiar exaltation, writes in Romans 8, all things, all things work for the good for those who love God, even as we are being conformed to the likeness of his Son. Yes, as we seek after Christ, we can and should become more like Job but not in our own moral integrity, but rather by the transforming power of God's grace that enables us to rest in him, to find our joy and our satisfaction, our hope in the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. Let us pray.